Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 29th of November 2012. I always tell newcomers to make good use of the website CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com at the beginning of the broadcast rather than plug myself all the way through it. And that way you can, you can help me out if you want to and if not you can tune in elsewhere. What I do is go into the, the system you're living in, how it got to be this system that you're living in, the one that don't tell you about it at the top because you truly, truly believe that it's so awesome and over your head that you'd never understand it anyway. In other words, they don't want you objecting to all the big plans that are underway right now. And this system, of course, has been here before you were born. It's supranational. It was set up a long time ago by those who decided to take over the world, all of its resources, and alter all the people on the earth, including population reduction. But they want to improve the stock, basically, of slaves at the bottom. And it's all done through science and academia. And uh, the big boys at the top that set it up, of course, control the money off the whole planet and all the big corporations as well. So you can go into the CuttingThroughTheMedias.com website, make good use of it. There's over a thousand free audios for download. There's also transcripts in English and all the sites you'll see listed there. And you see transcripts for print-up in other languages. Go into AlanWattSentinel.eu. And if you want to support me too, you can do so by buying the books and discs at CuttingThroughTheMedias.com and donating because it really is pretty, pretty tough, uh, tight these days. And uh, from the U.S. to Canada, remember, you can use personal checks or international postal money orders. You can send cash or use PayPal. Across the world, you've got Western Union MoneyGram and PayPal. Remember, straight donations are really seriously welcome. And as I say, you're born into the system. Your parents don't know it was on the go a long time ago. And uh, your grandparents, too. As I say, these boys at the top have brought about world wars in order to change the sides of all, all competitive nations and conflicting nations. That's the dialectic, of course. And many of the propagandists talked about this about the, the year 1900, even before, in fact. And uh, they did bring about their world wars, because wars, as Carl Quigley said and others have said, uh, changed the, the cultures of societies on, on all conflicting sides. The cult, massive cultural change. In fact, Quigley said you can get more done in five years of war because you're under martial law type scenarios than you can do in 50 years of peace. Hence, 9-11 was the kickoff for the 21st century, really, and uh, under this guise of anti-terrorism, the whole world's been turned upside down on cue all at the same time because of one major event. And uh, so it was all planned long, long in advance. This parallel government uh, has been talked about by Margaret Thatcher and other people. Once they get out of government, she says, we all know each other. We belong to the Royal Institute for International Affairs, comes from foreign relations. We all know the other leaders of the world get things done behind the scenes. We're not responsible to the public for the decisions and the things we make happen. So you're living through a fast transition. This is the age 
of transition, the century of transition. And by the transition, it means all their old objectives that they talked about from the 1700s onwards. That's more openly and publicly and published, in fact, they're bringing into being. Uh, so eugenical type society, everyone literally has a function to serve in this big society. If you don't have a function, you simply will be euthanized at birth. Interesting to see that Britain's actually bringing that in. Now, uh, if a, a child is sick now, they're already killing the elderly, and now it's the, the, the start with the young now too, apart from all the abortions. So you're living in a system that's scientifically designed, controlled. You are international. Uh, they use the nation-state only for voting time, so as you'll vote for them and keep the farce going. And all the politicians do is to rubber stamp the big uh, handouts to international corporations using your tax money and to bail out banks, of course, that run the whole show. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watts, and many times I've talked before about the educational system because big philosophers of the past, really deep thinkers who've pondered things and weighty problems, of course, have gone on about brainwashing. Brainwashing is nothing new by the state. And I'm not talking about just MKUltra and these kind of things, the advanced type. It's even more advanced now, of course. But uh, really, for rulership's purposes, they always have to brainwash the peasantry. In the Middle Ages, it was quite simple. The peasant knew all he was told, which wasn't much at all, except the Lord uh, the Lord over him, the warlord that was appointed over him to take over his lands. Uh, he now owned the lands, and you worked for him, basically. You're a tenant farmer. You own nothing. And you have to supply him with enough uh, stock uh, and, and uh, enough uh, crops every year to, for him to make money and sell. And then, of course, they had their, their basic religion, which kept the order very stable. You see, everybody had their place in, in the religious system. And that's all you had to, to know. That was it. Very, very simple. And then, of course, in the age of education, and education had to be given to the basic uh, plebeians, basically, because they had to man the factories and follow simple written instructions and things like that. And then they had to train a managerial class, so they had to give them education to an extent. And, and even then, it was a minimalistic education. And it still is today, for, for, even for those who go to university, what you're getting taught is low-level stuff, the three levels of all realities in this world. And you find that children, uh, children, regardless of education, uh, can, can tell what's right or wrong. If someone strikes a pal of theirs, they'll tell you that was wrong. Uh, they know who did it, and they'll say so. And, and because children are so open to seeing things in, in black and white, then governments know to grab them very, very early because they can then indoctrinate them with a style where they'll give them parts of a story. They can make them uh, prejudice, prejudice against certain things uh, and uh, or they can make them very, very prideful of their nation or their country or whatever and um, or religion. And uh, it goes on from there. They can get warped. And, of course, all totalitarian societies grab the children early and indoctrinate them to worship the state, basically. You see that in China. It's a state worship, which is communism. And um, 
as I say, the children are very easy to, to see what's right and wrong. But as they get older, of course, their education system can also alter their ways of seeing black and white. And, and then to get older, still into the workforce, they tend to be all me-centered, get hedonistic. And that was the technique that was brought in for this particular time because you're living through a stage where your whole culture was designed by other people for you to copy and emulate and think it's all quite normal. Most of them are actually dead now, but we're going through the culture they created a long time ago. This particular part was created 60, 70 years ago. They knew then they'd have destruction of the family unit, they'd have incredible promiscuity, mass abortion to bring down the populations in a hedonistic society. Bertrand Russell said so in one of his books, and many other people too. Julian Huxley, that worked at UNESCO, United Nations, said the same thing. So anyway, getting back to this point, um, as, as we grow older, you can, you can be trained to, to be fearful of saying something. And there's many, many techniques to make you fearful of saying something. And people, uh, it's like being in a workplace where you see something wrong happening and you complain and you, you turn around to the ones who have seen it too and you say, well, are you with me? We'll go and complain. Oh, you'll see the, you'll see the eyes going down because they're all scared of losing their job and all the rest of it. They know it's right, right and wrong, but nope, they'll go along and let others suffer. That's just what they do. That's, that's human nature, unfortunately. But we've all watched Palestine uh, our whole lives. It was on the go long before most of us were born. And people getting put off their land and uh, and uh, settlers coming in from uh, from Israel uh, or Tel Aviv and spreading outwards. And uh, we've watched the whole world sit in silence each time uh, like the Gaza Strip is attacked and so on. And people are like fishing a barrel getting bombed from the air, which is not called terrorism. But everybody's embarrassed to say anything and, and afraid to say anything, too. Now, the Palestinians have been trying for years to get some kind of status at the United Nations, at least get, be recognized as a people. It's, the big con all this time is to pretend that they're not a people. I guess we're just blowing up dummies, you see. And here's an article here, for instance. says, United Nations, although Palestinians achieve their goal of being upgraded to non-member observer state status at the United Nations on Wednesday, they still face a series of struggles to capitalize on that recognition throughout the United Nations system. And this is from Fox, Fox News. It's, it's not exactly uh, impartial. It says, the Palestinian Authority by General Assembly vote of 138 with 41 abstentions joined the Vatican Thursday as the only other entity with non-member observer state status. In practice, the Palestinians gain few new powers. And it says, much of what unfolds will depend on how hard the Palestinians want to pursue membership in various UN agencies and who will support them. And that's where the eyes all go down. Oh dear, because they're afraid of others, you see. Here's a look at how the Palestinians' role could change at the United Nations. Then it goes through a little list of things too, to see if uh, they can get different kind of um, organizations within the United Nations to back them on certain things and so on. Since last year, the Palestinians tried and failed to get full UN membership state status. The Security Council must approve new members, and the United States made clear it would veto any Palestinian attempts. So a child, you understand, a child would see that as being wrong very very clearly. Why would these people uh, not be given the same rights to exist as a people and be recognized as a people as anybody else? So when you get older, you understand that there's something bigger behind this, and folk are scared to talk about it. Of course they're scared to talk about it. And why does the U.S. 
jump in and say, oh no, we don't want that. And Britain did the same. Canada did the same too. What do they all have in common? What are they afraid of at the top? Anyway, so the doomed full membership bid was never brought forward for a full council of votes. The International Court of, Court of Justice, often called the World Court, what a disgusting name, the Court of Justice, right, accepts only disputes between fully recognized member states of the United Nations. So you don't get recognized. Well, to see, you're just a, a straw dummy, I guess. In the past, countries were not, uh, who, that were not yet UN members, like Switzerland and, and Nauru, accepted the jurisdiction of the court. However, parties to any dispute must be willing to accept the court's judgment, and it's hard to imagine any case in which both Israel and the Palestinians would agree to be bound by the court's decision. The International Criminal Court of the Hague can review war crimes and Israel has objected to the possibility of the Palestinians bringing cases to the ICC. But to do so, the Palestinians would have to file papers of ascension under their own treaties that set up the ICC. That membership option is open to all states. In practice, the application to become a state member of the ICC system would go to the office of the UN Secretary General, which is an official repository for signatures. The United Nations Chief's Office would, in that case, have to turn to the UN Legal Department for an opinion on whether the Palestinians constitute a state. So they'll debate if these people are really there or not, you know. Since, you know, Romans mentioned the Palestinians, but we'll, we'll debate if they're actually a state or not, you see. This farce, you know. That means if you're not a state, you can just slaughter them like Aborigines of Australia. They used to do that in the 1800s just for sport, you know. And I'm not kidding about that. Anyway, we'll see how this goes. And, and as I say, it won't go very far, but at least they've got some kind of... I guess you can go in and look as an observer at what happens at the United Nations. But uh, a child will see the hypocrisy and, and the wrongness in all the things that have been happening. But the adults, the adults that think they're sane and all that can be awfully disgusting, cowards at times, and they're scared to see anything at all. And here's another one. So I remember when the Inuits in Canada were given uh, their, their, their so-called area and their freedoms as a, basically a people in the province area, an area which they own. And I thought, in no time at all, the big boys in Canada that set all this up would have them in massive debt and bankrupt them, which happened, actually. So they're basically in debt and all the rest of it. The Inuit are sitting on billions of barrels of oil. And I wonder who would know that. Would the Inuits know that? Or would the guys who, you know, said, you can have that land down the road there, would they know that? It says, after a decade of legal wrangling and spending, $4.5 billion this year, Shell Oil was given permission to begin exploratory drilling off the coast of Alaska, but many in the local Inuit community are concerned it could have a devastating impact on one of their main sources of food, which is the bowhead whale. And, it's, and it shows you one, a woman here, they go in her house and all that, she shows you what she's got in the fridge. And there's a whale meat, uh, muktuk, frozen whale skin, and blubber, a selection of fish and polar bear foot, which looks like a human hand. See, they, it's very hard to grow vegetables and stuff, even Monsanto stuff up that way. And these have been living like this for thousands of years. And it says, fishing and hunting are central to the Inupriate way of life. Archaeologists have found evidence of human hunting whales in the area dating back to as early as 800 B.C. 
And it says, we're the oldest continuous inhabitants of North America's Point Hope's mayor, Steve Omatuk. This says, we've been here thousands of years. Well, that counts for nothing these days. As I say, if you don't get recognized, that's that. It says, Omatuk shares the fear, uh, shares the fear of many in the small community, population 800, that offshore drilling by shell could destroy the food chain that they rely on for survival. And 80% of the food eaten in Point Hope is caught by the people themselves. How the Indians elsewhere in Canada have been done in, I'm not, not kidding about this too, because um, the British did this very early on, in fact, if you go through Willie Bryant, other ones that the, it was inducted into Freemasonry, he was a chief, a uh, powerful chief, and uh, they inducted him into Freemasonry, and they, they, then a lot of the money that comes from government gets funneled through them, doesn't get to the people, and there's a lot of cons go on, but they'll find people in the take within their own people, the people there, who will eventually get uh, big bribes to allow all this to happen in their, their hunting areas and even on the land itself. And, they, and nothing will come down to them. That's just the way it's been in the past. So that's the way it is. And out of all the things in the world that are going on, uh, why would the U.S. make a priority for government loans and so on? A priority for countries to go along with the so-called gay bill, the homosexual agenda, uh, that's a priority across the world. Nothing else, just that. You know? Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm back. We're cutting through the matrix. As I've said before, the US, wherever it goes now, World Bank does it too, and the IMF and everybody else that puts out cash, uh, the demand that every country they go into uh, alter their moralities and their views on morality so they can be as debauched as all the rest of the countries that are already conquered. And anyway, it says the US presses Uganda on the gay bill, the homosexual bill, it says. And it says that... Um, the United States spokeswoman for the State Department, Victoria Newland, said that the U.S. is pressing Uganda not to pass an anti-homosexuality bill. Now, every culture is supposed to retain its culture regardless, uh, even under the hypocrisy of the United Nations. And it's really hypocrisy of the United Nations because they want to destroy all families altogether, for goodness sake, and then push this this, uh, this thing across the, the board. Now, governments should never be involved in morality in the first place. You understand that? That's, that's a fact. What consent and adults do is their business, as long as it's not, you know, in the street and you're falling over them and, and all that kind of stuff. And, but, they, but they're involved in morality. And they can go into all areas of morality and training people, stop smoking, stop that, stop eating this, stop blah, 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 stop, stop, stop. And then pushing all this kind of stuff on. And you've got to understand why they're doing it all, too. It's the destruction part, because I mentioned it before, that the, from the U.S. military magazine, from an intelligence specialist, they said they'll promote the debauched culture that's left of America, that's turned into America, across the world. And that's part of weaponization of these countries. Anyway, since the bill was denied in 2009, but it surfaced earlier this year in February when the Parliament resumed its proceedings, members of Parliament applauded as Nadorwa West MP David Bahati took the floor to reintroduce the controversial bill for reference to the appropriate committee. And what they say there, they, they don't want to, to uh, support homosexuality in their country. Well, that should be their rights, you know, as I say, you'll never stop it. I mean, but people, whatever they're doing in their bedrooms, can say it's up to them what they're going to do. 
but should, these things should be kept out of all laws. And, and these are countries, remember, I mean, these are, these are systems that, that, that we're in, these global systems that promote certain things like destruction of all family values and even local community values. They introduce a fake community value, which is you run by commissars that are appointed over you. That's the wellness programs, by the way, too. That's, that's got to do with that. But, um, They've got no rights to get in to, to tell people what to do and, 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 and all the rest of it. They should have the right decisions. And, and they've always got reasons for what the laws they, or culture that they have. They've got reasons that developed in us along a certain line. And that kept the, the cultures intact. Of course, they all have to be destroyed. This article I'll put up tonight, too, is uh, Welcome to the One Planet Economy Network. And it's from the European Union Parliament, the Super Parliament. I've got the Soviet Parliament. And it says, One Planet Economy Network was a two-year EU-funded project under the EU's seventh framework program for research and technological developments and so on. And, of course, it's all about addition tax money across the big corporations like everything else is today. But you can understand that everything everything today is international, planned a long time ago, the end of nations, except when they need you to go to war and to, to fight for the big internationalists. They'll give you an ulterior propaganda, alternate propaganda, but it's always to get you to go off and fight for things you don't understand. And uh, it goes through the different partners that they have and so on. The global leaders in the fields of resource accounting, policy, scenario development, stakeholder engagement, project management, and all that kind of stuff. You understand, to understand what's even happening in the world, uh, you'd, you'd need something the size of the Rockefeller Foundation that runs a lot of it uh, to even find out and, and try. And even then, you'd be stuck to your own department. You couldn't have this all this data in your head. There's thousands of organizations that are built up above government, above government. They all network together above government and even put their own guys in to your uh, national governments and of course one of them is the Royal Institute for International Affairs they've always been international and they're all using your tax money today as a perfect fascism really uh, where they where they're not just bailing out banks that are private companies uh, but um, dishing out your tax money to all these different projects uh, that they run it, it's freebies, freebie cash and grants to massive corporations especially in the greening industry. And that's, that they're all on board on that, too. Everybody's got a foot in the greening industry for stuff they don't care if it works or not, as long as they get all the cash. Makes them awfully rich. Mentioned, too, the other day that Obama and others, actually, have, have gone to what used to be called Burma, Myanmar, and uh, they got the promise from the, the, the top chutzpah there that uh, he was going to go... Uh, make changes that are going democratic, and he says they were irrevocable, they couldn't change them, they're definitely going that way. And here's an article here, Myanmar security forces use incendiary devices and raid on a protest camp, this is today. And as his witnesses says, dozens of monks and other protesters were injured when security forces used incendiary devices that set fire to protesters' encampments outside the offices of the Chinese company in charge of the project, which is a partnership with the powerful military in Myanmar, formerly Burma. And it uh, shows you some of the photographs, and you'll see them all singed and burned. The raid came hours uh, before Do Aung San Suu Kyi, the Nobel laureate, the leader of the opposition parliament, was scheduled to visit the city of Mon- uh, Wa- Moniwa near the mine, it says. 
Her visit underlined the widespread support the protests had engendered across the country before the raid. Analysts said the brutal way that the crackdown was carried out could hamper Mr. Tenzin's efforts to persuade the country that his government has made a clean break from the military regimes, as a good way of doing it, that ruled the country for five decades. There will be political consequences. The editor of Open News Journal and Myanmar magazine says this may be the start of an uglier phase for the government. Things may get a little bit more complicated. No, it won't because it'll depend on all the deals and financial deals that China, the US and all the rest of the big boys have made with this country. Back with more after this. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi folks, we're back, cutting through the matrix and... Hypocrisy, hypocrisy, we've got so much hypocrisy, as I say. But uh, I mentioned uh, an article a few days ago by John Pilger on on an article written that described the Palestinians as, as really different from everybody else. It's shown no grief and all this kind of stuff, a, a culture of martyrdom. By a, it, was a, it was a woman living in Israel, Tel Aviv, and she belongs to the Times Bureau, and it says, the Times newspaper. And this article is from The Guardian. It says, Times Bureau Chief in Jerusalem will now have her Facebook entries edited. The new measure slams shut an important window on a journalist's assumptions and, how, and shows how constricted Israel discussion still is. It always will be, though. And it says, The New York Times has assigned an editor to work closely on the social media entries of his Jerusalem Bureau Chief. And it says, while in Gaza reporting on the recent Israeli attack there, Judy Rudoran, the Jerusalem bureau chief for the New York Times, wrote several Facebook entries that caused substantial controversy. The episode began when she wrote a Times article on the funeral of the Dalu family, ten of whom, including several small children, were killed when an Israeli bomb destroyed their house. That article suggested several times that Gazans experience relatively little grief when their family members are killed. It says there were few, if any, visible tears at the intense, chaotic, lengthy funeral. The tone, far more fundamentalist than funeral, was also a potent sign of the culture of martyrdom that pervades this place. The mourners, except for a few close relatives inside the mosque, were neither overcome with emotion nor fed up, she says. But it was her subsequent Facebook entries elaborating on that article, first flagged by Phil Weiss of uh, Mendo Weiss, which caused real controversy. While death and destruction, it goes on, is far more severe in Gaza than in Israel, it seems like Israelis are more almost more traumatized, meaning more human, you see, yeah, she opined. Uh, that, she said, is because the Gazans have a deep culture of resistance and aspiration to martyrdom. In other words, if you have that prejudice in you, and it's a prejudice, of course, uh, that you're seeing an inferior type that by instinct or something, this can't help but just move towards martyrdom and, and feel no emotion. Moreover, they have such limited lives, she says, that in many ways they have less to lose. You know, it's like the Aboriginals of Australia, let's go hunting them today, you know. Because see, that's what they did in the 1800s. It says, when I talk to people who, who just lost a relative or who are gathering belongings from a bombed-out house, they seem a bit ho-hum, like, oh, well, you know. 
She then proceeded to embrace the underlying Israeli premise, but why the targeting of Palestinian journalists is justifiable. The spokesman for Al-Quds television, the office hit hardest yesterday, talked about the news coverage as part of the Palestinian struggle, which is certainly different from the Western media ethic. And perhaps most striking of all, she cited an article by Slate's Dahlia Lithwick, who was in Jerusalem, which describes the fear Israelis and her children had for the war. And Rudoran, surrounded by unimaginable carnage in Gaza, said... Uh, reading Lithwick's article about the trauma of Israelis is what produced her first tears in Gaza because she's, she's, she's Jewish, you see. She lives there and her family. They moved there. And she belongs to a whole bunch of Jewish organizations. This is, um, so that what you're seeing here is, 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 is really, um, is, is racist. It's intergenerational. You understand? It's intergenerational. And it has moved into the culture itself. And it reminded me when I read it of uh, many other things that have happened in the past. That This article here actually goes on and gives you examples of the British system too. It says here, General uh, William Westmoreland infamously said in the 1974 documentary, this is the US, Hearts and Minds about the Vietnam War, the difficult to watch video, and the, the link is here by the way. He says, the Oriental doesn't put the same high price on life as does a Westerner. Life is plentiful, life is cheap in the Orient. And also, there's other ones that uh, British uh, generals have said in the past as well. This is trying to dehumanize the folk that they then lord over. But as I say, it reminded me of uh, the movie V for Vendetta. And in the movie, of course, there's a, a, a scientist, a, a woman scientist, who is really excited to, to use experimental vaccines on these prisoners. And they're all downtrodden, half-starved, and all the rest of it, but they go one by one. And she says, you know, eventually, daily, as I saw them downtrodden, uh, they wouldn't look you in the eyes anymore, they looked dejected, and so on. She began to despise them despise them because, see, it's a really human, in other words, they, they would have looked back defiantly, even though they've got a rifle butt in the face at the hand. But you see, that's how racism and, and the eugenical type of racism, because it's all based on that, comes from. It's all got that in common. And uh, it's, it's pretty disgusting to see this, this being carried out by people who know exactly what they're doing. And they do know what they're doing when they write these articles like that. So anyway, now... <laughs> The death pathway, well, I've talked about the death pathway, the Liverpool pathway started off there, of course, in Britain. And now when you go into the, uh, the for, for the doctors, when you're, maybe broke a hip or whatever, they'll put you on the pathway and kill you off. You're, after all, you're a pensioner. You're taking your pension money that you paid in for your life. And the government could use that and throw that cash to international corporations that are funding as we go green and all that across the planet. But, um, and I'm not kidding about that. Yeah, I got, in this new system, you either have a use for the system or you don't, as far as the big boys are concerned. And the same with the up and coming children too. I mean, most of them are getting aborted anyway. That's how far gone the society is today. It's been under warfare for a long time and they didn't even know it. They still don't know it today. They're under warfare. They don't know that all opinions are given to them. They don't even agree with now because they've all been brainwashed in that technique. It works awfully well. This is now sick babies go on the death pathway. Doctors haunting testimony reveals how children are put on end of life plan. And the practice of withdrawing food and fluid by tube being used on young patients. This is doctors admits uh, starving and dehydrating 10 babies to death in neonatal units. 
in the Liverpool Keith Parkier Pathway, subject of independent inquiry ordered by the ministers, politicians. Investigation including child patients will look at whether cash payments to hospitals to hit and use the death pathway targets have influenced doctors. They actually have targets to meet now, you understand? It's all economics, folks. That's what you come down to. So sick children are being discharged from the National Health Service hospitals to die at home or in hospices or in controversial death pathways. Until till now, end-of-life regime, the Liverpool Care Pathway, was thought to have involved only elderly and terminally ill adults, but the mail can reveal the practice of withdrawing food and fluid by tube is being used on young patients as well as severely disabled newborn babies. So it's not just the babies, folks. One doctor has admitted starving and dehydrating 10 babies to death in the neonatal unit of one hospital alone. I watched a, a documentary not so long ago about some, this whole uh, eugenics movement, the history of it, and old, old footage and film. And there was a guy in Germany at the time uh, who, who came out and he actually appeared in his own movies, like fictional type movies. But he shows you this child just born and the nurse is going to cover the child up with a blanket to keep it warm. And he points out all what he claims are the defects in it. And he pulls the blanket away and looks at the nurse and she understands, leaving it to die. It would be a fit, a fit type human being. You know, like they have a classification of little tick-offs. On a, on a, I think if you're fit enough to, to, to live and serve the system. But here we are, it's all here. And it says, one doctor's admitted to starving. Writing in a leading medical journal, the physician revealed the process can take an average of 10 days during which a baby becomes smaller and then it shrinks and it dies. Starve them to death, folks. The LCP, on which 130,000 elderly and terminally ill adult patients die each year, is now the subject of an independent inquiry ordered by the ministers. Well, it's agenda, so these, this inquiry is going nowhere. It's, this is agenda. The investigation, which will include child patients, will look at whether cash payments to hospitals to hit death pathway targets have influenced the doctor's decisions. Well, they do, yeah. And medical critics of the LCP insist it's possible, impossible to see when a patient will die. And as a result, the LCP death becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, you can starve anybody to death, folks. This is a form of euthanasia used to clear hospital beds and save the NHS money. It's true, they want that money too for other big projects. The use of the end-of-life care methods on disabled newborn babies was revealed in a doctor's Bible, the British Medical Journal. Earlier this month, an unnamed doctor wrote of the agony of watching the protracted deaths of babies. The doctor described one case of a baby born with a lengthy list of unexpected congenital anomalies, whose parents agreed to put it on the pathway. And the doctor wrote, uh, they wish for the child to die quickly once the feeding and fluids are stopped. They wish for pneumonia, they wish for no suffering, they wish for no visible changes to their precious baby. Their wishes, however, are not consistent with my experience. Survival is often much longer than most physicians think. You understand, every human, the body is an incredible thing. And it really struggles to survive at newborn and even the elderly. It wants to live, you understand. So, uh, and this article here might lead into uh, injections for euthanasia. The way it's worded here, I can tell you that right now. But it says, parents and care teams are unprepared for the sometimes severe changes they will witness in a child's physical appearance as severe dehydration ensues. It says, I know as they cannot, the unique horror of witnessing a child become smaller and shrunken is the only route out of a life that's become excruciating to the patient or to the patients or the parents who love their baby. So, as I say, 
you're going to find that this will probably lead to them getting the right to, to just, uh, you know, stick in the injection and that's it done. This is a progress, folks. If you, if, for those who don't understand what progress means, you're living a very amazing uh, agenda. An agenda uh, that the big top capitalists, the true capitalists who created communism used in the Soviet system. Very freely, in fact. And now it's combined together. Why is the U.S. building a $100 million underground facility outside Tel Aviv? It says here. Leave it to the legendary Walter Pincus from the Washington Post to flesh out a request for the proposal uh, construction project plan for Israel. The site is called 9-11. Who's kidding who here, eh? The auto name project will cost up to $100 million, take more than two years to complete, and can only be built by workers from specific countries with proper security clearances. Palestinians need not apply, it says. When complete, the well-guarded compounds will have five levels buried underground and six additional outbuildings on the above grounds within the perimeter at, at about 127,000 square feet. The first three floors will house classrooms, an auditorium and a laboratory, all wedged behind shock-resistant doors with radiation protection and massive security. Only one gate will allow workers entrance and exit during the project and that will be guarded by only Israelis. The bottom two floors are smaller according to the full line of schematics uploaded to the Army's acquisition business website. And, and the link is on here too. I'll put them all up at cuttingthroughthematrix.com at the end of the night. It's impossibly used for equipment storage. As impressive as American design features already are, Ada Carmi Melamed architects will decorate the entire site with rocks it chooses but are paid for by the contractor and provide three outdoor picnic tables. I guess that will look like a little picnic site or something. Pink has also found a detailed description of mezuzahs that will adorn every door in the facility. These mezuzahs, notes the U.S. Army Corps, shall be written in inerasable ink on uncoated leather parchment and be handwritten by a scribe holding a written authorization according to Jewish law. The writing may be Ashkenazic or Sephardic, but not a mixture and must be uniform. Also, the mezuzahs shall be proofread by computer at an authorized institution for mezuzah inspection, as well as manually proofread for the form of letters by a proofreader authorized by the chief rabbinate. The mezuzah shall be supplied with an aluminum housing with holes so it can be connected to the door frame or opening. Finally, all mezuzahs for the facility should be affixed by the base's rabbi or his appointed representative and not by the contractor's staff. And it says, along with this request, is another called 9-11 Phase 2. Also in the $100 million range, Pincus finds the complex facility with site development challenges requiring services that include electrical, communication, mechanical, uh, HVAC, HVAC, heating, ventilation, air conditioning, and plumbing requirements, telling, and along with the fact that the contractor must possess a U.S. or Israeli secret security clearance, he believes uh, this phase to be a secure command center. And it's just, uh, the Pulitzer Prize winning Yale grad born in 1932 who's worked with intelligence and media in D.C. since 1955 closes his piece with these shadowy words. The purpose of Site 9-11 is unclear. So there's, uh, again, the U.S. taxpayer at work is pretty good. Now, Here's um, another article, too, is to do with the desert tech concept. As I say, there's thousands and thousands of organizations with big, big, big business, all intertwined at the top, way above everything, never appears in the media and so on. 
And Desert Tech is, a, is an idea for a corporation that came out of a foundation uh, that was set up by the Club of Rome. You know, this big so-called think tank, this impartial think tank. And it says it's developed a desert tech concept uh, described below to take advantage of the truly enormous quantities of energy falling in sunlight on the world's deserts and wind energy. In other words, this corporation is going to live awfully well in all the countries that have signed on to all these treaties uh, where they're going to throw money at alternative energies. And, uh, and you can't lose. How can you lose when they're going to throw billions and billions at you? But they're doing it because they want to save the planet, you understand. Anyway, it says there's wind energy in those regions too. And they want to make a worldwide grid. It's all part of the worldwide grid too, you know. And it says now the Desert Tech Industrial Initiative, a consortium of blue chip companies has been formed to make it happen. And the Desert Tech University Network has been established to promote Desert Tech related research and teaching. So, as I say, it's just a, you see, understand, if you want to survive, or you got children, you want to survive, you either wear a black uniform walking around with a machine gun with a badge on you for the government, or the international government, or, or, or you, 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 or work for a bureaucracy in government, or, or you have to get into all these, uh, so-called non-profit organizations that rake in billions, uh, of tax money from the public, and have corporations on the side. I mean, that, that's, that's just facts, it's true. It's just the way it is. It's true. Thousands and thousands of them. They never hit the media, you know. But I put this one up tonight and two or three other articles about it too, uh, about the literature. It's interesting too that it says it began in 2003 was developed by an international network of politicians, scientists and economists known as the Trek Network from which Desert Tech Foundation arose. Now they had countries listed on it uh, across the Middle East that they were all eventually uh, up, 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 torn up by the colour of revolutions. It's interesting that, because now they've got them all in now, you see. And they always know what's coming up ahead, all these big, you know, guys at the top, like wars and overthrows, and long before you hear of it or anybody hears of it, they, they already know what they have to do. If someone's in the way, they'll just overthrow you, you know, and as simple as that. And this article here, too, as to do with Australia. I mean, Julia Gillard, who's not popular in Australia because she's such a liar, because she's a liar. She She's on many TV uh, uh, tapes there showing how she was going to definitely be against carbon taxes. And, of course, she, she lied and got in. And she just immediately did all the Fabian stuff that she knew she was going to do. But she also lied, too, about slush funds for unions that her boyfriend was involved in, and apparently money was even deposited in her account as well. Anyway, it says, there are new claims that Julia Gillard helped setting up a union slush fund that was ultimately used to funnel crooked money. And I'll put this up tonight, mainstream news in Australia, because she's contradicting written proof of her involvement of this. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt, we're cutting through the Matrix and talking about Australia and the Fabianist uh, Julia Gillard and how literally is an inquiry going on and the evidence is turning up, written evidence of course, that she helped set up a, a slush fund, a union slush fund that was ultimately used to funnel crooked money. So things are not going well for the Fabian, unless her pals pull the strings uh, or, or, or get some big thing happening to divert everybody off into some other area, which they're known to do as well. But we'll wait and see how this goes. Also, 
in Australia, and I've mentioned about the carbon currency is to be another big boon as they all live off the peasants at the bottom, all these big corporations and, and so on, and governments, and all those who work for governments. Because they don't work for you. They don't work for you, they work for governments, you understand. And they work for world government and corporations. But sees Australia again, uh, bank accepts carbon credits now as currency. And it's in Australia. The idea of buying and selling carbon credits is stored in trees on farms or in forests. So, so it's all hypothetical stuff. But now it's, they've put it in. It's a new, it's a new religion, you understand. You really believe in it awfully hard. It has been adopted by an international merchant bank. Guess who? Rothschild Australia is setting up a managed investment scheme that aims to buy and sell carbon credits to multinational companies to offset the company's greenhouse gas emissions. Rothschild's Simon Games Thomas says the scheme is more about learning how to legally sell this new type of commodity rather than turning a profit. It's not about profits, no. It's less of a profitable enterprise than trying to get involved in the marketplace. It says, even though, mind you, the media in, in Europe has been mentioning that the, the profits of carbon trading for the last four, six or seven years, because they're way ahead of it, it's in the billions and billions, multi-billions. Uh, there have been a lot of questions asked by clients of the bank about how, how the protocol of, or how working in a carbon-constrained uh, world is going to affect their business. In response to those questions, we decided to put together the consortium. Well, that's massive. Remember the Rothschilds, too, in Britain uh, said that their, their private bank in Switzerland, the, the family's private big bank in Switzerland, is going all the carbon credits of the world is going to go through that bank. Can you imagine the trillions of credits going through every night? And and just the interest alone going on that, that's theirs. Do you understand? Not bad out of an idea, eh? It's just an idea. It's not real. Nothing's real like that. But since the move has been welcomed by Professor Snow Barlow from Research Centre for Greenhouse Accounting. Greenhouse Accounting. <laughs> Professor Barlow says the process of trading carbon credits can earn money for farmers with tree lots as well as having an obvious benefit for the environment. No, the farmers, you see, they can't farm anymore. You see, that's what's happened in Australia as well. They're told by the government, we can't farm anymore. And also the big corporations are grabbing cheap land and getting bonuses and, and, and cut things from governments to buy the cheap land, calling it carbon sinks, you see, like an investment. So it's, it's all a big joke, but we believe in jokes. You know, it's another religion. It's a good religion, this one. As I say, you need an awful lot of true, true faith to believe in it. Uh, but faith, faith can be helped along but big bucks flowing in if you're a company dealing with all of this. It's quite amazing how things work in humanity, isn't it? Now, obviously, as I've said before, the Jimmy Savile scandal, and he was a procurer for, you know, very important people in Britain, would have to be quashed, and it has been quashed. BBC inquiry into Jimmy Savile's scandal is to stay secret. There's your democracy, and we're for the people and all that stuff. It, it's all done, folks. You know, you you vote for government. Why do you vote? Wake up and maybe grow up. Maybe grow up, eh? Try to become wise. Grow up. Stop being children. Young children would understand this is wrong. But once you've had the taste of the schooling and your hedonistic society, you know, that's it. From Hamish myself, Frontier Canada is good night. May your God or your gods go with you.